0: Today's scripture reading is Exodus 2, verse 11 through 25. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled their trough to water their father's flock. The shepherd came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to the son and called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, let's pray. We'll get to work. Lord Jesus, we want you to be the focal point of everything that goes on in this church. We want, at the end of today, for us to be more in love with you, more passionate followers of you, more committed to you. And in order for that to happen, we need your help. We can't do this on our own, we can't atone for our sins on our own. And we need you today to remind us of the importance of having you live in and through us. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you to come now and remove from our minds distractions, things that would hinder us from hearing from you, from your word. We ask for a power that can only come from you blowing among us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A.W. Tozer was a Christian Missionary Alliance pastor in Chicago for a number of years. Some of you may be familiar with some of his writings. He wrote a fabulous book on the attributes of God, I think probably one of the best books, called The Knowledge of the Holy. And Tozer had an ability to really nail it when it came to a particular phrase or a summary about God or the Christian life. In regards to the people whom God chooses to use, A.W. Tozer said this, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. When you think about that for me, well, think about that with me for a moment. It's doubtful that God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. What is Tozer saying? He's saying this, that in order for God to entrust somebody with ministry, in order for God to work in and through someone, he has to take... You through difficulties, through trials, through challenges. He has to take you through seasons of hardship where you come to realize that, you know, without God you really can't do anything. Where you come to realize that there's a model of ministry expressed within the Bible that involves the deconstruction of who you are. Jesus talked about this in uh, John chapter 12. This is what he said. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life rather, will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the same thing that Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, where he had to learn this lesson that when he is weak, then God is strong. 2 Corinthians 12 says, But God said, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. You see, that's what's going on here. That God's power is made perfect in weakness. That God aims to disassemble his servants so that he can rebuild them for his own glory. So when it comes to God's kingdom and the people that he uses, brokenness, church, precedes usefulness. This is very, very important for you to understand. In fact, this is really the sum total of everything I'm going to say today. I want you leaving today with this little phrase in your head that brokenness precedes usefulness. Before you can be useful to God, there needs to be a brokenness. Sometimes that brokenness comes because of a self-decision Through God's Word, you choose to be broken. In other cases, it's providential circumstances that God brings into your life where He breaks you. So why does God operate that way? Why does brokenness precede usefulness? The reason is, is that at the end of the day, everything is about God. It's about His glory. In all that we do, whether we eat or drink, we're to give all glory to whom? To God. God is not willing to share his glory with another. We see this idea of the preeminence of God's glory on full display in the New Testament. But in the book of Exodus, we see this idea begin to dawn. As we saw When we started this series in Exodus two weeks ago, that Exodus is filled with all sorts of wonderful things like Ten Commandments, the the, the wilderness wanderings, the people crossing the Red Sea, the tabernacle, God's deliverance out of Egypt, the Ten Plagues. But we learned that the book of Exodus is not about Israel, and it's not about Moses. At the, the end of the day, the book of Exodus is about God. And as Moses goes to tell the story of the deliverance of God's people, it's very interesting. He wrote the book of Exodus. He puts in the book of Exodus at the very beginning a moment where Moses is broken. And it appears, based upon the story, that Moses thinks he's useless for the rest of his life. Sent to Midian to wander as a shepherd in a foreign land. And what we see out of this this story as we enter into this wonderful book of Exodus, is that God intends to use people, but he must break them before they are useful to him. Brokenness precedes usefulness. Today we're going to look at this through two seasons of Moses' life. Last week, we saw a baby, Moses, that was born, that in the midst of dark days and confusing circumstances, God moved in a surprising way. He, he sent a child, and that child was preserved in a, a basket, an ark-like uh, floating device on the Nile that allowed him to be rescued and then adopted into the royal family of Pharaoh. Prior to that, we saw the dark backdrop that is laid for this book with slavery and ruthless oppression. And now we come into Moses' adult life, and we see how he positions himself in this story as somebody who eventually is useful. We'll get to the story of the burning bush in two weeks. But before we get there, we have to see how broken Moses really was. So there are two seasons in Moses' life. If we understand what uh, Stephen said in Acts chapter 7, he talks about Moses' life, and Stephen indicates that uh, Moses was 40 years old when the events happen in Exodus 2 verse 11 where we are today and and then the next series in his life the next season of his life was another 40 years and and then there was another 40 years where he led Israel so Moses' life really is about 120 years and it's broken up into three different sets of 40s and each of these seasons of his life we learn something about Moses about his character about God's plan to see his people delivered What we're going to observe today is that before moses can become this quintessential leader of israel God has to first completely deconstruct him And there's really a lot of hope in that and let me show you how and why First this season that we see that moses enters into is he's commendable, but he's imperfect in other words he's got a burden on his heart. He he wants to do what is right, but he goes about it in the wrong way. Verse 11. We see that much has transpired since we learned in verse 10 that Moses was drawn out of the water. In fact, as I just said, it's about 40 years between verse 10 and verse 11. And during this time, Moses was raised in the royal family in Egypt. Again, according to Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, in verse 22, he says this, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and his deeds. So Moses enjoyed all of the highest privilege and wealth and education and comfort that had come to be a part of the royal family in Egypt. He had grown up as an Egyptian with all of the benefits that were involved. However, at some point in his adult journey, Moses became burdened over the plight of the people of Israel over his people. If you read verse 11 too casually, it almost sounds as though Moses sort of accidentally discovered that Israel was suffering. But that's not really the case. Look at verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. It almost sounds as though he just sort of just happened, but we'll see in a moment from Hebrews 11, it appears as though Moses comes to a kind of an epiphany moment where he realizes that these are his people and that he, as a highly placed Egyptian-trained Israelite, is in a position to help his people. Notice the development of what we see even in verse 11. We see the phrase, his people, literally, it's his brothers, it's used twice in verse 11. It says, he went out to his own people and looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So he says that twice in the same sentence, his people, his people. The idea is that Moses at some point began identifying himself, not as an Egyptian, but rather identifying himself as an Israelite. Further, the term went out is really important. One day Moses, when he had grown up, he went out. That's the same word that throughout the Old Testament means exodus. So get this, before Moses could lead the people in exodus, he had to have his own personal exodus. That fits a lot of our stories, doesn't it? Before you can help lead people out, you've got to have your own story of being led out. And that is the case with Moses. And then it says that he looked on their burdens. And this has more emotional overtones and what the text would just indicate when you read it the idea is that Moses is sharing in the emotional distress of God's people he sees what's happening and his heart and God's heart are aligning in terms of something should be done about this he sees what is happening to the Israelites and he just wants to do something he has a heart to deliver them Take your Bible, go over to Hebrews 11. We'll see this even further. You know, the New Testament serves as the best commentary on the Old Testament. In Hebrews 11, in this great hall of faith, where we say, by faith this person did this, by faith this person did that, we, we, we find that the writer of Hebrews tells us something about Moses' epiphany. What What's going on in the heart of Moses? Look at Hebrews 11 and verse 24. The text essentially tells us that at some point in his life, Moses made a conscious decision to side with God's people, even if that meant difficulty or hardship. Again, Hebrews 11:24. 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Rather choosing to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So the writer of Hebrews sets up this paradigm, or this paradox rather, between the fleeting pleasures of sin or joining God's people. And the writer of Hebrews says Moses chooses to join God's people and to turn away from the fleeting pleasures of everything that was involved in being a part of the household of Pharaoh. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Notice that the writer of the New Testament, of the book of Hebrews, puts this idea of Christ into the Exodus narrative because, after all, the whole Bible is about the person and work of Jesus. And so he says, in effect, that Moses is choosing to side with Christ. He's choosing reproach with Christ as greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. So at some point in his life, Moses makes this conscious decision that, look, I'm going to side with God's people text tells us, Hebrews 11, that he was looking for the greater reward. So what it seems that's happening here then, in back in Exodus chapter 2, is that this visit to go see the burdens of the Israelites was not some kind of isolated incident. Not some sort of unusual thing to do. It appears that Moses has a growing burden to do something about this difficulty and hardship. He's looking for a way to free these people. In verse 11, we learn that on one of Moses' tours, he witnessed an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Verse 11 says that. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Therefore, verse 12, he looked this way and that. I mean, you know what that means, right? He's, he realizes that to act, to rescue this Hebrew, would have been incredibly dangerous. Why? Well, because he's a member of the royal family. And these folks are slaves. And the reason they're slaves in the first place is because of the fear that they might somehow revolt. So if a member of the royal family goes and starts delivering those people, he could thereby collude with them and there could be some sort of coup d'etat. And so Moses looks this way and that, knowing that even one action like this could prove very costly. Seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The Egyptian likely was threatening the life of this Hebrew, and so Moses goes... And kills him and then buries him. Now, Moses must have thought that he was doing something that was helpful and positive. Although there are still elements of secrecy and still elements of danger here, Moses is determined he's going to do something to stop this oppression. Verse thirteen we learn that he goes out again the next day. When he went out the next day, so it seems as though there's a pattern here. Moses is continually going out, observing the suffering of God's people. Behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. They're having some sort of fisticuffs, fighting. Moses sees this, he stops the chariot, gets out, runs up to them, and he said to the man who's in the wrong, probably the person who's accosting the other, Why do you strike your companion? It's like, look, your brothers, why are you fighting? Moses is not only burdened about their oppression, but now he wants to bring peace to, to, to god's people and the person who moses scolded took umbrage with his intervention and resorts to something you were familiar with in grade school and junior high school well, who made you my boss right who made you in charge who made you the judge jury and verdict He says this, who made you a prince and judge over us? In other words, who made you, both the police officer and the court system? Who made you, who gave you this right to come in and intervene? Who do you think you are, is essentially what he's saying. And then, just to make sure the pushback is effective, he throws some scandal in there. And he says, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Can you imagine the look on Moses' face at that moment? The text says that Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. I mean, obviously it is. The word had apparently spread around that Moses had killed this Egyptian slave master. Again, back to uh, Stephen's summary of this in Acts 7.25, it says this, that Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand So there's this growing burden within Moses' heart to do something, but the problem was is this presumptuous action of killing the Egyptian slave master was now creating very negative effects. Doug Stewart, in his commentary on this text, gives us an insight as to what may have been going on in the culture of the Israelites because of Moses' actions. He writes this, It's not difficult to imagine why Moses was disliked or why the news about his murderous act had spread so far and so fast. An Egyptian overseer was missing, an investigation was underway, and soon... Or, or soon would be. And there was every likelihood that the Hebrews would be blamed and severely punished for the overseer's murder. They're going to assume that a Hebrew slave murdered the taskmaster. And you know what oppressive governments do when slaves kill their masters. Everybody gets punished. And we see this again early, later on. <clears throat> that when Pharaoh thinks that the people aren't working hard enough. He just takes the straw away from everybody. Such a situation would become the talk of the community and would easily surface someone's admission. I saw who did it. What Moses had tried to do had, from his people's point of view, backfired. He had taken matters into his own hands, and his arrogance in doing so probably was going to get a lot of people in trouble. So in many respects, the slave, the Hebrew slave, was right in saying, who do you think you are to do this? So this is a pattern, by the way, that begins to develop in the book of Exodus. This is the first time that we see it, we'll see it over and over, of the Israelites resisting Moses' leadership. In this case, it was probably warranted. In other places, it won't be. And frankly, we'll get a little annoyed with the Israelites in the future. For instance, when Moses comes and tells Pharaoh that he has to let the people go, Pharaoh takes away all of the straw from making the bricks. And the effect is is that the people say to Moses, you are making us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. Right? Or when they go to the Red Sea, and the Red Sea is here, and the Egyptian army is coming against them, and they're stuck in the middle, they begin to cry out against Moses, and they say things like, we told you to leave us alone. Or in Exodus 16, when the people are hungry, and because they have hungry bellies, they have grumbling hearts, and they say, "We brought we, you, you brought us out into this wilderness to kill us by starvation. When you read the book of Exodus, after a while, you, just, you want to start beating the people of Israel yourself because you can't believe how just backwards they are. And come on! One of the subplots of this book is the manner in which Moses continually deals kindly with God's people. In fact, in Numbers chapter 12, by, by the way, a passage that Moses wrote it says that Moses was, the, was, was very meek, more than all people who are on the face of the earth. He wrote that about himself. <laughs> Amen proud but meek you know i don't know how those go together god must have told him write this write this or it just was straight up true and i think that it was you read the book of exodus moses is quite impressive for his level of patience i mean there will be times in the in the exodus story that god says i'm going to wipe them all out and start with you you know god said that to me once or twice i might go that's a great idea you know <laughs> if it was up to you you might have said the same thing And my friend Jimmy, Jimmy and I, we'll start over, right? We'll just do the whole thing or we'll just start this whole church thing all over again. Moses says, no, Lord, don't do this. Don't do this. Moses likely learned church, meekness, but he learned it the hard way. You don't learn how to have power under control by studying it in a book. You learn it by being broken and then being rebuilt. Moses made some decisions here that were presumptuous. No question. And now he's in trouble. Verse 14, because of his killing of the Egyptian, because it was widespread, Moses knew that it would only be a matter of time until Pharaoh would know about it. And sure enough, verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. So here we have the quintessential leader of Israel, the man who will lead them to the Red Sea, the man along with Elijah who will appear with Jesus in his transfiguration. Moses is considered one of the greatest leader in all of Israel's history. And here we have the dark days of the way in which Moses blew it. He was arrogant, had a really, really good heart, but he chose to do things the wrong way. He was commendable, but he was imperfect. Secondly, here's the next season. The second season is that Moses is broken, but he's not useless. So he he goes to Midian, and from all, for his perspective, it's over. I mean, he had to flee Egypt. There's no way he's ever going to be able to go back. He flees to the land of Midian. Now, the Midianites were distant relatives of the Israelites. Abraham's, another wife of Abraham named Keturah. Um, that's where the Midianites came from. And throughout Israel history, Israel's history, sometimes they'll have good relationships with the Midianites, sometimes not so good. Like the story of Gideon, not so good, where the Midianites are attacking the Israelites. During this season, there is a a level of friendship between the Israelites and the Midianites, and so Moses flees to that region. These folks, the Midianites, are nomadic desert dwellers, and he goes there to seek safety. We're not sure exactly where uh, the Midianites lived, but we do see that in God's providence, Moses gets close to a place that becomes very prominent in the story of Exodus. Look at Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1. In two weeks, we'll go to this wonderful story about the burning bush. But notice that Moses gets close to the burning bush because of this Midian season. Exodus 3.1 Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. You know what mountain this is? It's also called Mount... Sinai so get this Moses in the dark a dark moment of his life has to flee and he's leading sheep and he around the mountain of God this place called Horeb and eventually he'll bring the people of Israel back here so that while Moses is leading the people of Israel through the wilderness guess who knows how to live in the wilderness Moses does guess who knows where the where Mount Sinai is Moses does guess who knows how to survive in this environment Moses does why because of this season in his life In verse 15, we learn that when Moses fled to Midian, he providentially came to a well, and there he rests. Verse 15, Moses fled from Pharaoh, he stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now it just makes sense that... In the midst of an arid culture, a well would be a place where lots of people would congregate because lots of people need water, especially if you're a shepherd and you've got sheep and they need to um, be sustained with hydration. Verse 16, we see what happens. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs, to water their father's flock. So these seven girls come and they're out tending their flocks and they bring them to be watered by this well. Verse 17, we see a problem that happens though. And the shepherds came and drove them away. So other folks were there and drove them away, took their water or whatever, wouldn't let them get provisions. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. You can almost hear it, can't you? In fact, how many of you have seen... uh, movie the ten commandments with charlton heston remember that does that like really ruin you for exodus does it so what happens according to the charlton heston version ten commandments moses goes ninja on these uh, shepherds he does he just goes ninja so he goes ninja on them right and he saves them moses hey look he was probably militarily trained in the country of egypt i don't know if it was like that maybe even better but regardless the he saves these women and frankly they're pretty impressed you know they are But listen, the story tells us more than just about Moses' combat skills or even his bravery. What this story demonstrates, don't miss this, is that Moses is still concerned about alleviating suffering. He still has a really big heart to be able to rescue people who are in distress. Apparently, Moses didn't succumb to the things that you and I sometimes succumb to, a mentality of, I got burnt and I'm never getting involved in that again. Ever been there? pouring your life into somebody, trying to help them, maybe giving them some counsel, trying to help them put their life back together, and next thing you know, they're talking about you behind your back, throwing you under the bus, and you're all burnt because you poured your life into somebody else. And you're like, see, that's what happens. We get involved, and we get burnt. You just fold up shop and say, never again involved in some kind of social justice issue that's really dark and messy and difficult and you find suddenly now it becomes personal you get hurt you walk away and you're like i'm never doing that again listen to me if you get involved in people's lives or get involved in ministry and your aim is never to get hurt you won't do anything and moses didn't succumb to this mentality that's frankly a bit self-centered isn't it to say you know what even though this didn't go well before i got a heart for this i'm still going to intervene reminds me of the words of Jeremiah the prophet that he got so tired of people not responding to God's word He said I won't talk about God anymore And yet the text says but his word was like a fire shut up within my bones and I was weary from holding it back So what we see here is that even in exile Moses is still able to do what is right So let me ask you can that be said of you? Is there room in your understanding of God and even your understanding of difficult circumstances to still be engaged in kingdom work even though you've been hurt, you've been burnt, and frankly, you're not 100% whole yet? Can you still pour your life out into other people? Or do you have to have everything together until you're willing to be out there again? See, it seems as though even though life was disappointing, Moses was still willing to get involved. From there, the story progresses fairly quickly. Verse 18 when they came home, these girls came home to their father, Ruel. He said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And like any good dad with daughters, he said, well, go get this guy, right? He, 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 this could be the guy. And so he, you know, <laughs> that's what he does. So where, where is he? You didn't bring him back? You know, come on, go get him. Why have you left the man? Duh, go get him, you know. Call him that he may eat bread. So they call him. And Moses met the father. By the way, this this man is Jethro. He has a couple different names that are used in the Bible. And to understand this, sometimes first or last names or titles were used. So Ruel or Jethro, it's the same guy. He gives one of um, his seven daughters to Moses named Zipporah. And she becomes Moses' wife. We next learn that Moses and Zipporah are blessed with the birth of a son. And his name is very significant. Do you remember the last time we heard about a son being born and was named? His name was Moses. He was named this because he was drawn out of the water. Now we have the naming of another son, except his name is Gershom. And the meaning of the name is very significant. It says, I have been a sojourner, this is verse 23, in a foreign land. That gives you a little perspective as to where Moses is at. I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So here we get a sense of Moses' perspective on his life. He views himself, he's an exile. He's a nomad. He's a wanderer. He has left everything in Egypt, and the name of this son reflects that fact. So it, it ends, this little pericope, this section of Scripture, it ends kind of dark. These are hard days for Moses. He had a big heart to alleviate the suffering of god's people and it blew up in his face and now he's in exile for 40 years in the land of midian and essentially moses looks at his life and thinks it's over you ever been there so i don't know it's game changing i don't know how this is ever going to work out or maybe been in a position in life where you had great dreams of what you wanted to do for god or his kingdom and you're you're stuck in a role and a job and a scenario that you just like how how in the world does this fit with god's plan well moses was there but lest you think that um all hope is lost the text ends with a reconnection with what god is thinking and it's almost as though moses wants us to understand that before he begins to lead the nation of israel that god has to get him in the right place and god in the right place and moses Gives us these words, verse 23. During those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Isaac, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. In other words, God has broken Moses And then Moses says, and God saw, and God remembered, and God knew. In other words, this book is not about Moses. This book is about God. It's not about Israel. It's about God. And Moses, in this brokenness, gets to a point where he seems to understand that Moses will be the instrument, but only after he's broken and rebuilt. Listen to me. Brokenness precedes usefulness. Before God can use someone greatly, He often has to hurt them deeply. Moses, an amazing leader of God's people, full of faith, full of meekness, but you know where those things were formed? Those things were formed in 80 years of preparation and specifically 40 years of thinking, there's no point to this, there's no purpose in this, I'm I'm, I'm done So, what kind of lessons can we um pull out of this text? What does this what does this mean for us? This is this is recorded for us in this order for some pretty important reasons. There's valuable lessons here. Let me give you three. The first one is this self sufficiency is incompatible with spiritual leadership. Hear me. A lack of humility, self dependence individual work ethic believing in yourself those might work in other areas of our world and our culture but listen to me they never work when it comes to spiritual leadership they never work because self-sufficiency is incompatible with spiritual leadership you can't be a godly husband you can't be a godly wife you can't be a godly mother a godly father you can't be a godly single adult You can't be a godly teenager unless you get this thing into your brain that everything in life is not about you, it's about God. And self-sufficiency is the essence of the problem that Christianity addresses. Think, for example, even in the gospel. And by the gospel I mean that God is holy and we are sinners. The solution to that problem, according to the Bible, is that God sends another person, Jesus, in order so that we can be forgiven of our sins. We can't self-atone. We can't make ourselves righteous. We can't in any way improve ourselves. We are hopeless. We are helpless. We are incapable of solving our own problem. We need to be rescued. We are like Israel in Egypt. We need a deliverer. And this model of deliverance in the New Testament comes in full picture with the person and work of Jesus. So the Christian faith at its core is this, that Jesus comes into the world to save sinners, and we are big-time sinners, and we need help. And that transfers into every aspect of the Christian life. It's not that you needed God just at your conversion, and then you can ditch Him for the rest of your life. No, no, no. Self-sufficiency is incompatible with conversion, and it's incompatible with spiritual leadership. Jesus comes to earth, Philippians 2. He takes the form of a man. He dies on the cross in order to establish a pattern of the gospel, but also how to live. That means that once you receive the gospel, you receive Christ as your Savior. What's the difference between heaven and hell? It's this. It's this, that, that people who go to heaven are those who understand that they've offended a holy God and their only hope is to have Jesus save them. They can't do it. And hell is filled with self-sufficient people who said, I'm going to do it my way. And God gives them their way. I, I want to live a Godless, I don't want God in my life. And God says, there you go, here it is. It's called hell. Jesus, on the other hand, comes. He lives this life in order not only to redeem us, but also to model what life is should be like lived under his authority. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the whole model of spiritual leadership is absolutely Backwards to what the world would tell us, and these things, humility, dependency and trust in God they're not just requirements in spiritual leadership because they work, they're requirements because of who God is and who we are. By the way, an interesting parallel between this season of life in Moses' life and Jesus's life. remember what happens after he is baptized and the Holy Spirit comes he's led away into the wilderness to be tempted for how long? 40 days, and all the temptations center on whether or not Jesus will do things in a self-sufficient manner. Will he meet his own needs? Will he prove that he is the Son of God? Will he achieve victory immediately? The essence of the temptation in the wilderness is, are you going to do things your way, or are you going to do things God's way? And the enemy was tempting him in that regard, and thankfully Jesus passed the very test that Moses did not pass. So self-sufficiency is incompatible with spiritual leadership. The reason we have to preach the gospel to ourselves, the reason we have to understand what the gospel is, is because you need to be reminded all the time, over and over and over, what do you have that you haven't received? And the answer, of course, is nothing. Or where Paul says, so where then is boasting? When you understand this, where is boasting? Answer, it's excluded. Why? Because everything you have, you have as a gift from God, apart from what you've done. Self-sufficiency is incompatible with spiritual leadership. Secondly, we learn from Moses here that good motives are no assurance that you will make the right decision. Moses is commended because he has he has the right heart, but it's interesting here that even with the right heart and the right motives, you can still be led down the wrong path. I've seen it happen so many times. Somebody gets a, a big heart for something and they, they really want to go after it. They've got all these right motives, but they begin to do it all the wrong way because it becomes a little bit about them. You, know, you can even use the, the ministry to to magnify self. You want to help people and suddenly helping them becomes more about you than about them. So just because you have the right motives doesn't mean that you will make the right decisions. And the caution here is just to be sure that when we're really excited about something, got a really big heart for something, we think, I'm on God's plan, that we not suddenly think that we can do no wrong. The tendency can be to be overconfident and to trust ourselves way too much you know it's kind of a sad thing but the older i get the less i trust myself just i've had more experience with myself and i don't like myself very much it's not a very good experience the older i get and i just think man i just How do you know the layers of motives and all those things? And Paul talked about this in in 1 Corinthians 4. Listen to what he says. But it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Why does he say that? Because he's recognizing that he doesn't even have the full understanding of what's going on inside his soul. He then says, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. See what he's saying? He's like, "I, I don't think I've done anything wrong, but I don't know. And then he says this It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Listen, I don't believe there's any condemnation for those who know Christ Jesus, but I think on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus is going to uncover the purposes of our hearts in what we have done and we will receive condemnation uh, commendation excuse me from god for those things that we've done in the right way but i think we're going to be a little surprised at how wicked and subtly prideful our hearts really were so just be careful give a big heart lots of desires great vision for what you want to do for god just be careful you can have the right motives and do everything wrong and then when it doesn't go the way you hope, often those people blame everybody else. If they'd just be more spiritual and understand what God's doing through me, they'd get on board. Yet, yeah, no. That needs 40 years of wilderness wanderings to work some of those things out. Third, and I find this to be incredibly comforting, that some of the best lessons in life come from some of the worst moments. Find this to be true in your life? God puts you into a seminary of hard providences and circumstances. There is a training ground of pain and failure. Some of you are right there today. You're in the middle of deep pain, hardship. You're wrestling through deep things, and you're you're in the middle of it, and you're wondering how in the world is this ever going to do anything good? It will someday. You'll see. You'll see. Paul talks about in um, 2 Corinthians of the ability to come alongside somebody and he comforts in our, us in our affliction so we can comfort somebody in any affliction. When you understand pain, suddenly now you can comfort people in a way that you wouldn't have been able to before. And, and listen, God also can use your own failures. Think of Peter who denies Christ. And God still uses him in a great and mighty way. Even in our failures, even in the midst of hard and difficult circumstances. God is forming things in Moses' heart. He's forming things in your heart. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul never lost sight of the fact that he was a persecutor of the church. And yet God specializes in redemptive moments. It says in 2 Corinthians 1, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. This is underlined in my Bible what comes next. This is so important. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You know why God takes the job away? You know why kids wander? You know why health circumstances come into your life? You know why all these things happen? They all have a, they're a wonderful tapestry that God is weaving together. And I can't explain it all, but I know this. The one thing that God is doing is kicking out this, this little props that we have underneath our lives to make us realize that we cannot depend on ourselves. We must depend on God. Oh, and who, by the way, raises the dead. When we were first married, my wife and I thought that God had called us for two years to go to West Africa for a two-year missions trip. And when that whole, a two years internship rather, when that whole thing closed up, I really wrestled. God, what happened? Did I make a mistake. Did you make a mistake? What in the world's going on here? And through those deep and dark waters of wrestling with God's will, when that whole thing folded up and just thinking, what a waste. You know, I look back on that season, it wasn't a waste. God taught me what it's like to be on the other end of a phone when you're a missionary trying to raise support gave me a, a global view of what God was doing around the world, put me right next to some of the best missionaries I'd ever seen in my entire life, felt what it's like to come into churches and have people like really not even interested in what's going on around the world. You feel like you're doing your dog and pony show with sunsets and slides, and you're like, come on, people, wake up. And you have this burden, this huge burden for unreached peoples and going to people who are in suburbia, and they just don't seem to care. I understood what it's like to be that person. And I see that, that was very formative in my life, but at the time in New York City when I called my wife coming off that plane and said, babe, it's all done, we can't go, that was a dark day. I'm sure you can look back on your own life. You can see some of the worst moments of your life were actually some of the greatest. You think back of some of your worst sins and your worst failures, man, you get renewed. You could be a phenomenal person in God's hand if you're patient, Don't pull one of these, hey, I blew it, I'm four weeks into recovery, I want to have counseling ministry. Yeah, maybe a year, okay, maybe a year, but four weeks, probably a little still self-deceived, okay? So, you know what I mean? You can have a great ministry, but just let the Lord have his time. We need to be careful. Brokenness precedes usefulness. It's so hopeful, it's so hard, it's so beautiful, and yet I've seen it over and over. I think Tozer was right. Before God can use a man greatly, he has to hurt him. He has to break him deeply. And we see this in the life of Moses. We see it in the life of Paul. We see it in Peter. We even see it in Jesus. In fact, I would argue this whole idea is rooted in the essence of the gospel. Before Jesus could be used greatly, he had to be broken entirely on the cross. Which is why John 12 is so meaningful. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So let yourself die so He can bear much fruit through you. Brokenness precedes usefulness let's pray lord for my brothers and sisters here who are in the thick of a dark moment like we were so many years ago wondering god what in the world are you doing we're having to wait so long brothers and sisters who are in the process of recovering from habitual sin issues who just have a big heart now because they're so excited about everything that's going on in their life Oh Lord, give us caution for our own souls. Give us hope that you can use all circumstances, even our own failures, to produce redemptive stories. Thank you that you redeem us. Thank you that you, Jesus, modeled this. And I pray for those here today who, their issue is not hard providences. Their issue is they don't really even know you, Jesus. And today, could be the very day when you open their eyes to the miracle of salvation that they cannot do it on their own they need the resurrecting power of the crucified son of god jesus needs to become their lord in life and today god that they would receive you and come to faith so help us lord to embrace brokenness we want to be useful but help us to embrace this dying mentality so that you can live in and through us. And we thank you for all the help that you give us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're in one of those dark seasons or you've got something going on that you'd like some folks to pray with you about, these folks are here up today to pray for you and with you. Don't leave today without being encouraged by someone praying for you, all right? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.